You are now listening to Small Monster Podcast. Philly fanatic. Baseball God diamond. damn it, look it up. Ba- Jesus. Baseball diamond. Check on our, just our bookends. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Small Market Podcast with your hosts, Watucky and Hoffman. How you doing, Watucky? Doing fantastic. Just got out of work. Living the dream. I just got out of... You just got a nap. Yeah, bed, yeah. Yeah, trying to nap. It's, we're doing these bookends awful late tonight, but... Uh, feel like a late night radio host. You do. You sound like a late night radio host. All raspy in the voice yeah. like you just got done smoking your last pack. Exactly. Drinking money. You know. You are. Yeah. Whiskey. Interesting. You wake up from a nap at this time of night to drink your whiskey. A hardened radio host. <laughs> yeah. A hardened radio host doing this with little money. Exactly. Little, little money and little self-respect. Gonna listen to listen back to this, and they're gonna go. It's, he sounds like uh, a crappy NPR guy. And yeah, it really sound hardened at all. Just, <laughs> a really just, poor yeah, NPR guy. Really like not a good poor. one. Yeah, like you'd be on NPR, but it'd be it would be late at night. It sounds like the uh, a guy that the NPR host could beat up. It sounds like a guy that works for NPR but hates his job and his life, and is probably being left by his wife. Right, and is forced to do a crappy local sports podcast. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I don't even like sports, right. but this is what I got stuck with. Exactly. I hate my life. My wife's leaving me. Just, just all sorts of stuff. My dog got hit by a truck. So Mark Leiter. <laughs> so anyways, we segue that into Mark Leiter. <laughs> you know, the Mark Leiter interview was kind of an odd one, Hoffman. Yeah. Uh, um, trying to get that started. He didn't. He doesn't use email. He doesn't use email. So, like, right. in the whole process, like, I, and I email, which is weird, because I emailed, his website has an email listed, even though he doesn't use it, and, like, his <laughs> wife emailed back right. under that and was like, well, you got to contact Mark directly at this phone number. Which was my first clue that this was not going to happen. <laughs> I, you know, usually when that, usually when I get, when I get those kinds of hints, this is a testament to how good you are as a producer and a, a booking agent, because um, when I get those kinds of cues, I'm like, nah, it's not going to happen. This, I called the phone number. She, the she number. left the phone number, yep. and sure shit, Mark Leiter answered, and I Gave him my spiel of I want to have him on the show and the whole thing and oh so you cold called him I I did cold call him that was pain in wow. the ass I cold called him so we did a whole back and forth I cold called him he didn't answer the first time then he sent me a text at like twelve thirty at night and it was like <laughs> I hey. thought it was later than that it was like two in the or morning no, or something no no it was it was probably between the two it was late enough. I was in bed it was late and enough I seen that, that I got the phone yeah. call it wasn't a text it was a phone call that's right because he left a voicemail. And uh, I seen the phone call. And I'm like laying in bed and stuff. And I'm tired. I'm like, man, I'm not answering a phone from Mark Leiter. <laughs> and yeah, I just you're in bed. It's, yeah, yeah, I'm in bed. I'm playing next to my wife. You're in bed it's with like, your hot wife. Yeah, you know? you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm tired, man. I worked all day. Like I, I tried reaching out to him earlier in the day. So, anyways, yeah. Long story short, he's like, hey, you know, blah blah blah. It's Mark giving you a call back. So then I call him back the next day at work, and we finally connect. <laughs> and the guy's like, all right, well, we'll, you know, 
as like, I'll remind you here in a week, you know, I'll send you, I'll, I'll call you back or whatever. And he's like, yeah, he's like, why don't you send me a text to say who you are first and that you're going to be calling me because I'm not saving your number. And he was like really just <laughs> blown about it. Like, I just don't give an F wow. who you are. Yeah. And I was like, wow, well, all right. This, this ought to be a good interview then. Like, I was like, all right, this is probably going to go fan, just to me, fantastic. I, I Right after that, I would have been like, well, then screw you. I'm not. Well, there, there was a little bit of me, but I'm like, I was like, all right, you know, went ahead with it. And that's when it comes into play where he's like, you know, I was like, send you the Zoom, you know, email. Well, I don't do email. So he ended up calling us and I had to give him the the Zoom meeting number and the password over the phone for him to log in. That's right. I remember you remember that? that? And I'm yep. jogging your memory there. And yeah. that's when he called me a pervert. <laughs> Either party could have given up on the other at any yeah, point in at time. At any point in like, time, He yeah. could have just been like, yeah, no, you know what? This is too much. Yeah, this is too yeah. much work, guys. Sorry. He could have, yeah, but he stuck with it. Yeah, he was kind and, enough uh, to, to put up with us, to put up with our technology. And, and I thought it was going to be kind of a, a rough interview because of the whole, well, what happened on the phone. Right. He gave me that vibe, and then... When I logged in, he seen my face. He's like, "Oh, there's a pervert staring at me." But then I quickly, quickly understood that that was his humor. Right, that was his sense of humor. Well, and then he saw me, and then he realized there was an even bigger pervert, which he yeah. he then said, "Yes, oh, yes." He he mentioned it to <laughs> me, and you know, um, then I you know that I think that gave us both the cue to realize like we, we could needle him just yep. like he could needle us, and it exactly. kind of broke the ice. Yeah. And that's exactly. good because I'm not the type of person to just kind of go out and raz somebody that I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't have those kind of balls. Right. Mark has those kind of balls. Well, you kind of get the impression that, like, with baseball guys, they they kind of have that, that like, you know, that kind of camaraderie, that kind of broship where you, you know, you tease each other. It's yeah. what you do. It's just what you do in baseball. There's kind of a lot of goofing around and... Joking around with each other and stuff, so he, I think, that made it comfortable just him acting that way, and, mm-hmm. and we knew that we could kind of get him. away w- with with a little bit too, with our own shenanigans as well, and and ask him whatever we wanted, and probably get away with it. So you know, and we and we did. And yeah. He answered everything. I mean, you put it pretty good. He's like, was kind of like the Denny McLean interview, except he wasn't an asshole, right? You know, right, he, he's, right. he's going to tell you he's a straight shooter. He's going to tell you what he thinks. He's not going to sugarcoat anything, right. um, which is a lot like Denny McLean. But he's not going to be like, hey, guys, I got I got dinner in a half hour. We got to we got to get this rolling. Right, like he right. stayed with us for almost an hour. Yeah, I, that's and that's something I've noticed with um, pitchers are a different breed. You know, they're kind they are kind of dicks. And you kind of have to be a pitch. You ha- kind of have to be a jerk to be a major league pitcher, I feel like. Um, and if he's listening to this, I, he, he'll, he might agree, but you have to kind of have, you got to have some cojones, some, some like, uh, some bravado, some kind of macho, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when you're out there on the mound and it's just you. You're the man. You're the man at that you point. You have yeah. to be the man. You know, that's the kind of, that's, you know, you have to be the kind of guy that is willing to stand up to Sparky Anderson or Joe Torre or you know uh, Tony Larusso to to 
be like, no, you're not taking me off or, or argue with your own manager and just, mm-hmm. you, you kind of have to have a little bit of jerkiness in you, you know? Mm-hmm. So he, yeah, other than that, he, I, he was a pretty cool guy. He was nice, you know? He yeah, was kinda, no, he was like, and he answered anything we wanted to, we asked him. Yeah. He, like you said, he's, he's really, he ended up, he's a really nice guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, at first, I don't, I don't know him. You know what I mean. Right. So I'm, I don't know what to expect. You know what I mean. I'm just nervous. I don't want the interview to fall through. Right. You know. Right. There is that that bit of when you're booking somebody. That's the thing you're most afraid of is that it's going to fall through. It's going to mm-hmm. fall apart, or the guy's going to tell you to f off and you know don't call me back. Now you got to start all over at square one. Try to find a new guest. Try to cold call them or email them or whatever and the whole process starts over yeah it does make it tough when you've got to call the guy outright and it's just not it's a weird thing you call Mm -hmm. him up and be like hey uh can i will you be on my podcast i know you don't know me at all but will you be on my show and this is what where do you even start with that it's a very it's a tough thing to do you gotta have some cojones as well Wataki to to do something like that but I'll say this Mark Leiter is a generation older than us um he that's probably how it was done that's how it was done probably when he was younger like we grew up we've grown up in the internet age you know what I mean where everything's done electronically emails texts blah 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 social media so that's why this AOL seems, Instant Messenger. Yeah, you know? boy, oh boy, you know exactly. I still use. I still have my five hundred hours from BR, the disc. BRB, be right back. Exactly. So, so, speaking of that, BRB, we'll be right back. But here's our uh, here's our interview with Mark Leiter. Ah, uh, my shoulder. I just got out of my sling the other day. Surgery. Yeah, another surgery, Mark. Yeah, at number seven. Holy Oh, jeez. So that means you'll be going back into the majors this season, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to do a satchel page. Yeah. 59 years old, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Fire away. So All where right. are you guys? You're in Detroit? Uh, we're about an hour and a half north of Detroit. North of Detroit? Oh wow, you live up in a nice area, huh? <laughs> is it nice up there? Yeah. Are you up by like in the peninsula, wherever that is? What is that? Oh, we're we're in the lower peninsula still. We're if this is Michigan, we're about like right yeah. here, like in the middle. Detroit's like way down here. Midland's right here. So where kind where would Drummond Island do that again? Where would um Drummond Island be? You ever hear Drummond Island? Drummond Island's like up here, kind of. Yeah, so how many hours is that from where you are? About two and a half to three hours. You know, my first year in Detroit, uh, Monahan was the owner, Domino's Pizza. Yeah. yeah. And he owned a sh- shit. I guess he owned most of that damn island. Yeah. So he, he had, there was a golf course, a hotel he had there, a motel, hotel, I don't know what it was. But he also had a bunch of cabins. So anybody who wanted to go on the All-Star break, he flew us on these like four-seater planes. I have the video too. Because when we were coming home, after it was really awesome. We stayed in a cabin, big cabin, gorgeous. You guys ever been up there? You ever go oh, up there? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful yeah. up north. Yeah, yeah right? It's, it was amazing. It was an awesome, awesome all-star, or all-star break. But um, coming home, we were about to land. We're coming down in a little six-seater. 
and there's a plane on the runway and we're and, and it's a small plane so you're just looking right over the captain's shoulders and it's like shit man is this guy gonna like we're heading down <laughs> the plane starts to go you hear the captain going oh shit like that's not good and i got it on vhs i had a big old camcorder back then and so he's going down and we're like racing this freaking plane that never got off the ground in time so we end up pulling up and going right and that guy pulls off and goes left and we had a circle but I, you know, not being like a pilot, you're looking at this going, holy shit, we're going to die. This plane's going to crash. <laughs> we're, we're, we're racing a, a plane below us on the runway. Who was yeah. all on that plane with you? Huh? Who was all on that plane with you? It, uh, that was only me, Mark Salas, and his family, me and my wife, my, my kids, uh, my son, and um, Andy Allenson was going solo. He was, a, he was another catcher. Oh, Back when you carry you carry three catchers. So Mark Salas, who was an awesome guy, we learned Mickey Tettleton all the time. Oh, cool! Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah but but Salas and all the other guys were so much better behind the plate. I mean, you can't say that publicly, but I mean, Mickey could hit the home runs. But I would have much rather any of those other guys. They called great games. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And as a pitcher, you'd rather have that than a guy who could hit a little bit. Right. In my opinion. So. So, so Mark. Uh, Going through, doing some research on you and stuff, more so than just when I was a fan, collecting baseball cards, cheering for the Tigers, I kind of was going through everything, and you come from a family that's produced, well, obviously yourself and your brother Al, everybody knows, but also you had a brother Kurt that was All-State in the play, yeah, yeah, minors. What goes on at home in your youth that, there's three professional ball players coming. I mean, that's a rarity. Yeah. Yeah, right. Isn't that amazing? Um, yeah, Kurt was good. My oldest brother, John, he got us all started back in the late 60s, starting Little League, and he was awesome. But back in those days, we lived in a small area. There were no scouts coming around or anything like that. But he threw it as hard as Al or me or Kurt in high school. Um, he just had some bad breaks growing up when he did. Um you know, we played a lot of sports. My brother Kurt, who's a couple years older than me, very competitive. Anytime I ever beat him at something, there was going to be a fight. Whether it was wiffle ball, uh, Monopoly, it didn't matter what it was. If he lost, he didn't think anybody should ever beat him. So there was going to be a fight. So you learn to fight. You learn to pitch inside and throw at him when he gets pissed at you. So we, my dad had one rule. We had a batting cage, which was pretty cool because my dad really didn't have any money. So he pulled out the net and then he cut trees down and used them for the poles. So you'd think we'd all be great hitters. And we were good hitters, like, for Little League and all that shit, but not for, uh, not for you know, big league level. But um, but my our, our dad's one rule was we had to wear helmets because when Kurt and I would go in there and play, you know, you have the poles going along uh, the nets, right? And the, pole, the, the nets go around all the poles. Well, we made a game up where if you hit it between the first two poles, it was a base hit. Second two poles was a double. Third two was a triple. And if you could hook the ball up into the side rope, and leave it get stuck in there. It was a home run. <laughs> Technically, it's a little blooper to the third baseman, but we changed the rule. So now instead of getting in there and just swinging away and all that, we were like playing like Felix Mion or Buddy Harrelson, just doing some freaking, <laughs> you know, punch and Judy stuff trying to win. But we would throw at each other all the time because we were competitive. We'd get pissed. If he's hitting me hard, I'd throw at him. So he would throw at me. We'd get into a fight and we quit playing for an hour and we'd go back in and start playing again later. But um, it made us very competitive, um, hated losing, and um, I guess we passed that on to our kids because now my son's played, and you know, Al's boy and uh, Kurt's son, they're all doing 
just as well as we did, actually. So, yeah, it's it's amazing. I, you know, you can kind of see it from you know you passing it on to your son and Al passing it on to his son. But I just you know yeah. where it all got started, you know, is, is yeah. curious. Yeah, it is amazing. It's amazing how many teammates over the years would just shake their head, just like realize how crazy that is like to have three brothers that got into pro ball um i remember when i first got called up i was with the yankees in 90 and al was with the blue jays then uh and if it wasn't for dave rigetti we would have had no pictures of it al and i you know a little embarrassed you know it's your first time really going to talk being on the same field we were in toronto this is september of 90 and uh dave rigetti was like oh holy crap this is amazing man you guys you're out here like Nobody's taking pictures. Get the camera guy. Go get. And he went and made a camera guy take pictures of us, which was awesome because we would have we would have been too embarrassed to ask him to do it. But Dave Rigetti was like just shaking his head, like how cool this is. You guys yeah. both here now. And plus, what I had gone through with all my surgeries and all that stuff, being told I'd never pitch again when I was younger, um, was amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. And that's you know you mentioned the surgeries and stuff. I was telling AJ you got kind of like an underdog story like nothing ever really fell your way um you know your brothers were all state uh you were playing you may work your way up to double a ball before the in before the injuries and you had the surgeries and then you were out three years and you got cut and then uh then you were in uh working corrections correct yes worked in a jail yep and where did it go from there because then you got back into baseball How, how did that all come about Being scared um, of the future. I think that's what just drove me to work. I wouldn't let anybody outwork me in my career. Any teammate would ever tell you. I mean, I never let anybody outrun me or any of that stuff. I always knew when I made my comeback that, you know, guys complain about dumb stuff. I mean, I don't think they mean it half the time. I hope they didn't. But complaining that BP's too long or whatever. Any dumb thing. This game's taking forever. And I look at him like, are you shitting me, man? Sitting here watching a ball game? Like, I worked in a jail. That sucked. So knowing if I didn't make it in baseball, that was like my future. That's what I'm going to go back to because I didn't finish college. I got drafted out of a junior college. Um, I didn't want to go back to school. So, yeah, it was it was a little bit scary to think, Okay, it's not that you're scared in the jail. It's just eight hours a day for how many more years? Twenty five, thirty. I don't know. It's a little depressing. You don't want the grind. You don't want to have to do that eight-hour, everyday grind. I get that. Yeah, Yeah, and I respect those guys an awful lot. You know, they always would say, like, you know, cop, the policemen have to deal with that on the streets, but then once they lock them up and throw them in jail, it's the corrections officer to deal with it for the rest of his life. Yeah, exactly. But that kind of gave me a little extra incentive to say, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. Um, And I made the comeback. I'm 26 in A-ball. It's crazy. And, and uh, I dominated there for about a little over a month, and they brought me right up to AAA, the Yankees. They figured, all right, either let this guy pitch and show us he's good, or we'll just release him. So I actually skipped Double A because back in 85, I only went to Double A for about maybe a month it was at the end of the season. So when I made my comeback, I basically skipped Double A, went to AAA, won nine games there, and the next year started off really good and got called up. It was I was too afraid to stop and think about how amazing it was and just kept going 100 miles an hour every day um, until I felt secure. And that takes about, you know, into your third year, you know, a good two years in the big leagues. You don't really feel, especially with Sparky Anderson. I don't know how old you guys are, but 
he didn't make it a lot of fun. When you're going good, it's always fun. Anything in life. If we're going good, it's fun, no matter what the hell you do. But when things aren't going good, you know, that's when you got to really reach down, you know, deep inside of you. Um, Sparky never made you feel, I shouldn't say you, I should say, at least for me and some of my friends, I couldn't speak for everybody, um, you never felt secure. You always mm-hmm. felt like, damn, I have a couple bad games, he might get rid of me. Right. Which sucked because I had a really good rookie year. I won the um, by the managers, I'm so proud of that award too, the uh, Topps All-Star r- r- right-handed pitcher. But, uh, voted by managers, so I should have felt secure, and I never really did until I got to like my third year. I guess that's when you feel like, okay, I'm here. I'm here now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, it was... Uh, you know, I, I I talked to um, Howard Johnson last winter because he came to town, and um, he uh, he said a similar thing to you. He, he said that Sparky really didn't like young guys, you know? Oh, I'm kinda, glad he said that. Yeah, he was kind of tough on on young guys so um you know don't feel bad or <laughs> or think that you were alone in the club that like you yeah. know like yeah. sparky treated you bad or he didn't like you personally i think it was just a young yeah. guy thing you know so yeah no he well the thing is i wasn't young <laughs> by the time i was in detroit i'm like 20 uh, what year was that 2000 so i was 28 that's not young but i get it no i get that part um, well, the good thing was you saw him do it to other people. Sure. And yes. so that made you feel like, okay, it's not, pre- I'm not going to say he ever treated me mean. It was just one of those, uh, couple of veterans once still lives out in Michigan that I played with. I was so thankful to get to play for. He would always say about him. I don't want to say his name right now, but he would say, yeah, when you're going good, you get the, at a Sparky, Hey, Marky, Tommy, Joey, Billy, Davey, yeah. when you're doing bad, it was, he, he, he do that head scratch and turn the other way and like walk away from you. Like, what did oh. I do? I just sucked in the game yesterday. I didn't, I didn't kill my buddy. I just reached bad. <laughs> right. He would like ignore you. Yeah. You'd always have to get used to that. But Scott Searcy and Aldred and a lot of the um, younger guys started letting me know. Yeah. That's how he's going to be. Like if he ain't going good, yeah. but I mean, it's okay. Because it keeps you on your toes, but there should be a point where you feel comfortable enough to say, I, I, I earned the job, I got it, so I think I'm okay. And it never really happened. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I was watching a, a story ESPN did on you and Sparky. Uh, he repeatedly said in it, he's one of our best arms, one of our best arms. I don't know why we didn't put him in before the All-Star yeah. break. And I'm thinking to myself... Why are you coming on TV and question and, qu- and saying that? I mean, you're the guy that pulls the trigger, you know. Like I, I don't know. That, I'm with you. It kind of rubbed me the wrong you know, way a little bit. And I like Sparky Anderson. I mean, I got, I got. Yeah. You know, but yeah, he's a cute old guy. Yeah. You know. <laughs> you know what I mean? He was, you know, he called, he tell, threatened to beat everybody up, but you'd just be like, okay. Um. Yeah. You know what? Too. Those teams were loaded with offense. Oh, it's Cecil Fielder, Rob Deere, I, Mickey Tettleton. I mean, Deere and Tettleton were home run, double, or strikeout. Cecil could hit, man. Cecil was – he could hit. He was 270, right? 270, 280, I think he hit. Um, seven, two, whatever. He, 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 I liked him. He was – he was – he wasn't just a power hitter. But anyway, yeah, with that kind of offense, that's why I always kind of think, like, wins shouldn't even be counted in baseball for pitchers. If you're not on an offensive team, how the hell are you supposed to win games? Right. You know, if you're on a team that you're averaging four runs a game or three runs a game, you're going to, you know, you're going to lose a lot of games. Yeah. It's like that year, um, Derek Lowe, uh, he won, the year the Red Sox won the World Series. I think he won 18, 19 games, something. He was close to 20 wins. 
I think his ERA was like almost six. It was in the high fives, but he was getting like seven runs. Somebody told me they said he was getting seven runs a game. He averaged on days he started. Well, seven runs a game, that's a hell of an offense. You're getting some serious wins or at least some opportunity for wins. Um, but that would have been nice. And Sparky said that. And I'm thinking, well, then why the next year did you go out and they signed, we signed Eric King? No knock against Eric King, but after my rookie year, I thought I'd be in the rotation. And I started off back in the bullpen again. And then after the All-Star break, they put Eric back in the bullpen and brought me back in the rotation. So I was always back and forth. And I always wonder, you know, I wonder how I could have done if I'd gotten 33, 34 starts there, you know. But we all had those kind of complaints and wonder why afterwards, you know. Right. Now, after the fact, you also uh, played under Dusty Baker with the Giants. Yeah, I love him. Uh, yeah, it was, I guess that's what I was going to say, out of all the different teams uh, and managers that you played under, who, who was your favorite to have to play under? No doubt Dusty's right there. Francona, awesome guy, awesome man. Uh, he was younger when I was with him with the Phillies. Um, Philippe Alou, I was only there for a little while, but damn, I, I really in Montreal? Philippe. Yeah, I was there for – the Giants traded me in 96 over there at, uh, during the, during the – uh, you know, during the race with Montreal, we sh- we had a good chance to win. We, sh- we should have made the damn playoffs. Um, September just turned out to a couple guys struggled in September, but um, Philippe Lou, but definitely Dusty, definitely Francona. Uh, you know what? Most of the guys were good though. Um, where else was I? Short time with the Yankees. It was uh, what's his name? Uh, the hell was his name? Stump Merrill. You don't even know who he is, do you? No, he was there right before my time. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, Mark. yeah, he was, uh, he was, um, eh. But there, then it was Sparky, then it was uh, the Angels. We had Marcel Latchman. Giants was Dusty, Philippe Lou, Terry Francona. I would have loved Lou Pinella, except oh, that man. I got hurt. Yeah, because he was old school, and I kind of like that. I like guys mm-hmm. that get pissed off. Yeah, I, but I'm, I'm, I like that kind of manager. Like, Dusty would get in your face and, like, you didn't know if he was going to beat the shit out of you or something. But I respected <laughs> it because normally you deserved it if he did. But you could go in Dusty's office and go at it with him, and he's not going to hold it against you. Um, so I liked everything about Bake. Uh, same with Francona. Francona's a good dude. But, yeah, they're all pretty good. You know what I mean? You're going to have a little bit of a favorite here and there, but they're all good. They're all good guys. They're all good. They know the game. Not, during the time that you played, sorry, I'll finish it. No, go ahead. During the time that you played, Mark, um, is known as the steroid era, to, yeah. to some degree, with a lot of the hitters, and you you pitched against a lot of good hitters. McGuire, Sosa, Bonds, I believe, are all in that era with Rafael Palmeiro. Um, oh man, what uh, what are your thoughts on that? As as a pitcher, you know, as a hitter. Uh, they're racking up these numbers and stuff, but at, on the other end of all these guys' numbers, there's a pitcher that's given up these stats as well. Did, Hell did, that, yeah. did that rub you the wrong way as a pitcher or you know, any of the other pitchers? That's really funny that you say that because you're the first, you're the only guy who's ever said that. Oh, I clean it anymore. I just had the surgery I was telling you about on my shoulder. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so I get a little bit stiff, so I'm going to try to. Does that mess you up if I do that? Nope, that's fine. You're fine. You're good. I'm trying to see which way it's comfortable. You know, that's a great question because there were a couple times in my career, and I, um, 
was very upset about it. Somebody took me deep, right? Sorry, guys. I'm just trying to make this. Am I screwing you up? No, nope, take so your time. Somebody, get comfortable. The guy takes me deep, right? Son of a bitch. <laughs> you know what the problem is? I got the damn plug in the bottom because I didn't want the battery to die. So this, this guy takes me deep. I'm not going to say his name. It, it cost me a win. It was a three-run homer. Now, I never saw the guy stick a needle in his butt or anything like that, so I can't say that he definitely did steroids. Um, but as a player, you looked in like, huh, I hear the rumors and whatever. And I remember thinking as he was rounded first, man, that's BS. That should have been a fly out. It didn't. It wasn't like when McGuire and Sosa hit him, they were bombs. They were going to be gone no matter where, whether they were on steroids or not. Um, I don't remember ever seeing Mark McGuire hit a cheap home run or Sosa. And you know, one of those pop-ups that go like two or three feet over the fence, like that right. kind of crap. Right. So right. all of those kind of home runs should be fly outs if you're not on steroids. Any ball that's only clearing the fence by, you know, five, ten feet or less, that's an out. It's a fly out. And so, yeah. So when all the bull crap went on after my career and they had the, you know, Palmer and all these guys going to Congress and that, and I thought to myself, you know, people complain and I want to, and I was saying a couple of us were talking one time. I said, who do we get to complain to? How much money did it cost guys who didn't take steroids that were pitchers? How many times did a pitcher get sent down for getting, you know, he might've been borderline and he happened to pitch against Texas or one of those teams that seemed to have half the team loaded up on, on roids. And I don't believe it was half the league. When guys say, Oh, half the, or everybody in half bullshit. You can look around the locker room and kind of guess. I mean, for me, I would guess like five or six maybe per team. There's no way. Unless there was a bunch of guys taking steroids and they never lifted weights, because I didn't see a whole bunch of dudes that looked that massive or big to where it was almost abnormal. Um, I don't know how it got after 2001, but in those 90s, and when I played with Bonds, he was normal looking. I was with Bonds in 95, 96, so I don't know about after that, but I know when I was his teammate, there's no way was he on steroids then. Um but, yeah, that's the big complaint for a pitcher. If I'm out there and I'm giving up bombs to guys who uh, are on the juice, well, I'm losing money. I might even lose my career because of that. So that makes guys tempted to think should they be going on steroids themselves. So, yeah, who do we get to answer to? You know, that's a problem. And uh, personally, I think if you just, you know, you ban a guy for life, wouldn't that take care of the problem? Yeah. Yeah. I mean – how is what he did any worse than than uh, Pete Rose? You know, and we talk. I feel like we talk about Pete Rose all the time on our show, and I'm like a constant Pete Rose apologist. I don't know how you feel about him, but you know, I feel like you think this, he should be in. I think he should be in. Yeah, I think he should be in, and maybe you have different thoughts about that. But um, I mean, if we're even considering. A Rod, McGuire, Bonds, everybody, you know, then then Pete Rose should you know I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm morally bankrupt and, and uh Well <laughs> you know no, no, I got so. as a former player we have to watch what we say publicly because you don't want to upset an ex teammate or piss somebody off. Um I understand. Yeah. I don't think the Pete Rose thing is the same though. And, and for this reason. I always thought one player, I have no reason to bring his name back up, but he said publicly, and he was a teammate of mine. It'd be hard for you guys to look it up because I played for so many teams to see which teammate. Yeah. Um, but this teammate, and he was an average player. He wasn't great. He didn't suck. He was average. And he said, because he failed the test, and he was one of the guys on the 103 names, and he said, 
my career was on the fence. I was triple A big leagues, triple A big leagues, triple A. And he said, I just took the gamble on trying it to see if I could get a career and I'm guilty. And I thought he gave it, came out with the best response. Don't fight it. Tell, he was the truth. He said, you know, I, I'm up and down. And yes, I did it. Um, still sucks, but he just came out. What's the point of lying? I mean, you did it and you had a career. Yeah. So I, I get those guys. I don't, I'll never understand, like, who was the one recently? Cano? Yeah. Yeah, Cano. How was that? You got your contract, you got your money, you got your career, and you're still taking steroids? He's, he's been That's in trouble for it before. Like, and- yeah, I mean, what the hell? But go, you know, the Pete Rose thing with the gambling, I just don't believe that he only bet on the Reds to win. I don't, personally, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. As much as he lost, you mean to tell me the bookies didn't say, listen, you throw one game for us, we'll just wipe the slate clean. I mean, I got to think if I were a gambler and I did that, I'd be tempted. And he hung out with some dude that used to sell steroids in a gym or something in that one movie or documentary they did on him. Yeah. He didn't take them. Yeah. The guy seemed pretty amped up every time he played. So I don't know. I don't know. But the steroid guys that are already in the Hall of Fame because of that, I've changed my views on it. I think he might as well just let them all in. But I think if a guy fails a drug test, you suspend him for one year um, for steroids. And if he fails a second time, he's banned for life. That would put an end to it, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah. Who the hell's going to try it if you know you might lose for life? You're banned for life? That would keep guys off steroids. But um, to me, there's guys in the Hall of Fame right now that took them. So if that's the case, then put Bonds in, put Clemens in, put Rafael Palmero in. Put A-Rod in, put Andy Pettit in. Because we had to pick Andy Pettit because he apologized because it was to help his ankle get better. I don't care what it was for. We all get hurt. I've had seven surgeries, all because of baseball. I didn't take steroids. Um, so whether it was for an injury and you were helping yourself get get better, you still knew it was wrong. It's you know, it's still cheap. So but because there are guys in that I guarantee took steroids, then let them all in. And just have it be noted that the '90s there was a high rate. People already know that anyway. But right. Clemens and Clemens and A Rod. Although I don't know about A Rod because now they have rumors of him going back to high school. But Clemens, Bonds, those guys were Hall of Famers had they retired. Like for example, um, Clemens. He got trade. He went to Toronto, right? Boston mm-hmm. thought his career was done. All- and he was he was Hall of Famer right yep. there. If he would have never pitched again, he's a Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the guy's back to better than he's ever been at, what, 38, 9 years, 40 years old? That just doesn't make sense. Um, So I just say put him in anyway because you got guys there already that are question marks. Same with Bonds. Bonds was a Hall of Famer before he was accused of it. So put him in the Hall of Fame because you already got guys in the Hall that most ballplayers know guys that did a little something. So that's my thing with it because every year, you know, you look at Facebook, I – I try to just look at baseball pages and try to have fun with certain... I think that's where I actually commented on you, Andy, didn't I? Yeah, yep, that's where... You said that I was agreeing with you or whatever. So I like the baseball pages, usually, until people start getting into fights and there's next thing you know, it's a freaking mudslinging contest. <laughs> um, it, is, it is, it's bad. But there, there's always the arguments on the guys. People love Bonds, people hate Bonds. Same with Clemens. So if you've got guys in the Hall of Fame that already did it and put the rest in, you know, yeah. and think yeah, about what I Sosa guess. and McGuire did. If you think about Sosa and McGuire, 
you know, after the strike, the, the attendance was down in 95, 96, but it was starting to come back. But with those guys doing that, and I'm a hypocrite because I thought mm-hmm. Sosa and Maguire were class acts. I thought they were great for the game, great to the fans. Um, so I am kind of a jerk in that area where I kind of feel like, well, I don't mind those two because they were good guys and they made it fun. It's kind of stupid, but um, they really did a great thing for baseball. I just remember how awesome that race was. Yeah. We used to come out of the dugout come out just to watch him take BP. It was amazing because the guy didn't, you know, everything was upper deck or out of the damn stadium. It was fun. Um, but yeah, I think that there's enough guys already in the hall of fame that did it, um, that you might as well just put the rest in. Yeah. Not that anybody's going to listen to me, sure, but that's no. what I think. Understand. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, Mark, a little bit about your time in, in New York because, uh, my dad is from New York and I spent my summers there. And I probably saw more Major League Baseball games at Shea Stadium than any other place because uh, my grandparents lived about 20 minutes away from Shea. Um, saw quite a few Yankees games, too, but I was partial to the Mets. I wanted to kind of ask you about your time in New York. And, and uh, like, you got to have some stories about Yankee Stadium or um, even playing at Shea a little bit. Uh you know, and that might be a, a too broad of a question, but you know, no, whatever you, you want to talk about, you know. Where did you grow up? Where'd you grow? Up? I, I grew up summer? here in Midland, but I went back and forth. Like oh. in the summertime, I went and I'd spend pretty much the entire summer with my grandparents, and my my grandfather knew how much I loved baseball, so he yeah. just he'd take me to five or six uh, Mets games because they were cheap as hell because we sucked, you know. And so we went to a lot of <laughs> Mets games, and it was close. It was close to home, so. Yeah. Spent, you know, well, we'd, we'd, you know, it'd be 12 bucks up in the upper deck and just hang out up there and I'd run around the stadium and try to get autographs and stuff. And, you know, Yankee Stadium yeah. was a little bit different, yeah. but yeah, it was tough yeah. to get down low. You yeah. can't sneak down. Those little tunnels made it too difficult to try to get a seat. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, see, now I was, I wasn't with the Yankees long. I got called up in July and I got traded the next spring, but, um, the Mets, you bring up the Mets. Now, we grew up in this area where I live, and we're about an hour and 15 minutes to get to Philly, to the stadium. And Yankee Stadium's about an hour and a half. Shea Stadium's about four days, six hours to get to, because <laughs> yep. you always run into traffic when you go over the Verrazano, and it sucks. No matter how yeah. enjoyable the game is, it's ruined for the drive home, because it feels like 1.30 in the morning every time. I don't know how many times I went there, a lot. And I think I got... Let's say I went there 25 times. I would say 20 times I got lost trying to get out of that damn parking lot and ended up yes. over by the uh, the stadium, the tennis courts and stuff. I'm like, oh, I yeah. did it again? Yep. Oh, my God. It'd be a two-and-a-half-hour drive home every time. But my first start – well, anyway, because we're from this area, we grew up Mets fans, but we also liked the Phillies. Yeah. So because growing up as a kid, you got the New York and Philly stations. This is back in the day, you know, when your cable only had 12, 16 channels still. Um, so we used to go to Philly cause it was closer, but we really loved the Mets. So we'd root for the Phillies unless they were playing the Mets. So I say that because one of the coolest things for me was my first time coming out of the dugout at Shea stadium and sitting there and looking out at it left field and seeing the bullpen and thinking about Cleon Jones, yeah. now I'm 57. So I do remember I was seven when, in, in, uh, when in, in, uh, the, the Mets, the great years and then 73. So, um, I threw a four-hit complete game. Should have had a shutout. Uh, Vizcaino, 
and yeah. hit a solo homer off me. Oh my he hit gosh. it in the first inning. Yeah, first inning solo. I did that three times that year. First inning or ninth inning solo home runs to lose shutouts. Um, but Vizcaino hit a home run off me. But I threw a complete game, and it was one of the biggest thrills of my career because it was at Shea Stadium. Um, it was in 1995, so Al was still in the American League. He was in Toronto. He wasn't with the Mets yet. Uh, but I, my brother Kurt was there, and we sat in the Mets dugout after the bus left, and we were just going to take a cab back. And we just sat in the Mets dugout and drank a six-pack and just like did childhood memories, and it was awesome. Goofing off, kind of just firing the cans on the ground in the dugout. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a thrill for me. Yankee Stadium is Yankee Stadium. No matter who you hate or love, when you're at Yankee Stadium, man, it's the house that Ruth built. So it's, it Mecca, was awesome. You know, it's Mecca. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't help it. It's yeah. just that place. And I like pitching there because the mound was nice and high. Um, you felt like you were right on the catcher. Uh, yeah, Yankee Stadium was cool. BP, just everything about it. Just the Yankee fans, you know, how they are. And um, it was cool. But Shea Stadium was even a bigger thrill. The, one of the – I don't know if it was a cooler experience, but it's pretty close, was why I signed with the Phillies. That was my dream. Your dream is to make it to the major leagues. And then after you play a few years, you're like, hey, maybe I'll make free agency and I can play where I dreamt of playing. And for me, yeah. it was Philly, not New York, because of always going to the vet. We used to be in the upper deck, Al and I, my brother Kurt, 50 cents for 14 years old and under back in the 70s to sit in the upper deck. And our Ber our recreation in Berkeley Township would have bus trips a few times a year to Philly games for 50 cents is all they would charge you to be on a school bus. Yeah. And the driver was a baseball fan. So even if we didn't have the minimum 10 kids on the bus, he was like, screw it. We're going anyway. I'll just pretend we have 10 kids on the bus. <laughs> He'll put the extra 50 cents a kid in, right? Yeah. So when I got there... Whenever you would go over the Walt Whitman Bridge to get into Philly from New Jersey, as soon as you get to the, as you're getting to the top of the bridge, you look to your left and you could see Veterans Stadium. And all the kids on the bus would all, including myself, we'd all be like, "There it is, there's a stadium!" And it was so exciting, you know. Uh, so when I signed with the Phillies, every day, and I'm not shitting you, for two years, every day that I went over that bridge, I would say, "There it is, that's where I work," and it would just make me smile, even though the Philadelphia media was brutal. I love the fans in Philly, but the media, there's too many jealous jerks, too many jackasses. <laughs> but um, they really were. They just were like jealous of players. I never experienced it like I did in Philly because I always got along with the media. I could bullshit with them, laugh, joke around, but they were just mean. They were vicious. Bill Conlon, Salisbury was, and uh, I can't believe he made it around all these years, Comcast and all that. Although my son said he's nice. Maybe he grew up a little bit. Um Oh, he got in my face once. He wanted me to hit him. I know he was looking for a lawsuit. They just ripped me so bad. Me, Danny Tartable, Rex Hudler over the All-Star break. And I just went, I went crazy in the locker room in Florida. Literally just lost my mind, throwing weights and all kinds of shit. Lightweights, but still weights. Um, all because, yeah, with the writers, and I just quit talking to them all together. I said, you know what? I don't need your article. I'm not talking to you guys. I sit out here and take my lumps when I suck and answer all the questions. And they were just, they were brutal. But anyway, signing, other than the media, going over that bridge and seeing Veterans Stadium right there, and, and you're pulled like, it's, I mean, think how much you guys love the Tigers. You go, imagine if you had played for the Tigers, like you're pulling the parking lot, yeah. going, shit me, where I work? Yeah. You're going out on the exactly. field today? We're just, I'm still a fan just because we play. I loved the game when I was growing up. So now all of a sudden you're playing on a team that you fantasized about. When we were younger, I was saying before, we were sitting in the upper deck, and we used to just say, God, 
can you imagine just playing catch on that field someday? Like, you know, we're 12 years old, just dream, right? We all do it as boys and girls mm-hmm. probably do it too. You're just fantasizing about batting practice someday. And then all of a sudden you're a free agent and that team is willing to sign you. It's like, what? No way. So getting a sign for the Phillies, um, we weren't that good, but it was home. I'm home. I, I, I had to experience it. You know, they always say, be careful what you wish for, right? Because um, the media did. And I, not, not to say that I was good. I did suck for about two and a half months. I started off good in April, early May. And I think by late May, all of June, and the beginning of July, I sucked. I sucked. And I don't mind. I mean, if, I mean, I mind sucking, but I don't mind if you get booed by fans or the media wants to say lighter blew the game last night. He sucked. Okay. But they would talk about, like, you're a piece of garbage. This guy's trash. Like, really? Because of a baseball game? I'm a piece of crap. You throw in the garbage? Ah, they were brutal. Yeah. Um, I mean, it really is. It's like you're getting a little too personal here because I blew a baseball game last night. I didn't burn your house down with your family in it. <laughs> so, um, but but the whole thing with being there was absolutely amazing. The big leagues is the big league, so it's pretty much awesome everywhere. Um, but that was pretty cool. But the New York stories, like Yankee Stadium, yeah, I mean, what do you say? It's Yankee Stadium. So, yeah, you walk around. And I was there uh, as a kid before they redid it in 75. So then I got to be on that one there in 77. Oh, nice. So just knowing the, all those Yankee great teams in the 70s, yeah, it was very cool. Yankee Stadium, Shea Stadium. Yeah. Uh, you know it from growing up there. It was it was it was absolutely i mean you talk about like oh that was your office and stuff i (laughs) this this is pretty gross and not to get sentimental but i i would have killed just like clean the urinals at tiger stadium or shea or anything you know i i i get it yeah no you know and i'll tell you this tiger stadium um guys used to think i was that's like why do you like it here because you know it's a hitter's part yeah Mm -hmm. i don't like I like the way you stand on the rubber and look in at home plate and it's crooked. Um, <laughs> home plate, yeah, home plate is like, it should be like this. It was like that. Yeah. And they and I remember the first time I pitched here, one of my teammates said, hey, listen, just so you know, when you get on the mound, you're going to see home plates crooked. They just never fixed it from back in the 30s or whenever it was when they redid it. Because Tiger Stadium, what, home plate was down right field, right? And then they, yep. they turned it around back whenever. And so, and the other thing was, whenever you looked at the score, when you first get there, when you're not used to it, every scoreboard has balls, then strikes. In Tiger Stadium, it said strikes, so you'd look up and the count was two and three. <laughs> Counts never two and three, it's three and two. So, it's so a lot of times when you're first there, you have to do a double take, oh, wait a minute, what's the count? You think it's two and one, but it might have been one and two because it would say strikes and then balls. I like that. I like when it was drizzling out during BP, you stood under the overhang and you didn't get wet. Yep. Yeah. Like, Tigers, what a shame they had to knock that down. Uh, like, yeah. they couldn't have kept that. And like, I bet you they would have made enough money in people touring it and visiting. Oh, yeah. That it would have paid for itself and probably made a few bucks. Absolutely. What they, yeah. What's there now? It, there's a, like, there's, there's a little league field there, so they they actually have like an AstroTurf now over the original field. They have the original flagpole still there, but they have like a really nice little league field. They're kind of revitalizing that neighborhood around there and stuff. When I was uh, a few years back, before they did all that, it was just the field, but it was still there. And there was actually a group of people that would come and they would rake up the dirt. They'd put bases down and they'd take care of it. And I went there with uh, my oldest and we played catch and I ran the bases with them. And that to me was a dream. 
And I told him, he was like six. I was like, you don't understand the amount of history that's been played at this plot of land. The people that have ran these bases, you won't realize it till you're 40. And you may never even then really realize it because you didn't grow up watching that like I did, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I I didn't know that. That's pretty cool that they did it. But what a shame with such a, a unique stadium that those old ones were that they couldn't have done something whether it was save the bleachers yeah. and have a field something yeah. it was too beautiful of a place but it was funny there because that dugout um when you pitch bad you know you take it out of the game or something you're pissed right you don't you got to sit in the dugout till the inning's over but one time i made the mistake because you know sparky never wanted you walking off the mound until you handed the ball to him he didn't want to drop the ball and be embarrassed or something so you weren't allowed to walk off one time I did, and he chased me, and I wrapped my head. Every time you go down in that freaking dugout to get to the locker room, so you got – these are the steps, right? You're going to go into the dugout, and then you go this way, and you go down the next little couple of steps. But the concrete little ceiling was about – you had to be like five foot four to not hit your head, so you always had to duck your head. And if you did bad and you were pissed, you weren't thinking about it, you're going to storm out of the dugout, bam, and you oh. grab your head, and you're like, now you forget what you, you just want to put your fist through the brick wall, a concrete wall next to it. But boy, that happened several times where you bang your head right there. And now you're more pissed at that than getting taken <laughs> out of the game that you just got shelled because you forgot to duck your head going through that tunnel. <laughs> he chased after me one time. He got in my face. You go, do that again. I'll kick your ass right on the mound. And he's looking up at me like five, five. I'll kick your ass right on the mound. You ever walk off that mound before you hand me the ball? And I deserved it because I did kind of walk in like here, man. Just kind of flipped it at him. He didn't want that. But that was a great stadium. Yeah. Everything about it, I like. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, especially when dudes hit it over the roof. Yo. Absolutely. Were you ever there when uh, when anybody did that, when Cecil did that? or Cecil did it to um, – he did it when I was with the Yankees. I think it was actually Tim Leary. I'm not uh, – 100 or Mike Witt. I'm not 100% sure which Yankee pitcher was starting that day um, because at the end of that season, the day before the last game of the year, Cecil had 49 homers, yeah. and the media came up to me after the game. So there was two games left. I guess it was a Saturday and Sunday, and then the season was over. So I was the starting pitcher against the Tigers. I had two starts against the Tigers in 1990 with the Yankees. I did great in both of them, and that's where I ended up getting traded. Um, but I remember all the media saying, well, didn't you give the home run up to uh, – Cecil hit it over on the roof, left field. Not right field, because right field it was done a lot, right? Left field wasn't. But Cecil hit one off one of the Yankee guys. So, yeah, I was in the dugout and watched it. But I was also with the Tigers when Cecil hit it out of Milwaukee. Mm. That was nuts. He hit that ball over the bleachers in left field. And then behind there was a, a barbed wire fence that went out into the parking lot. And Cecil hit only Frank Robinson was the only other guy to ever do that, I believe. Holy wow. Yeah. Yeah, when you're sitting in the dugout and you see that, I remember Cecil ran the bases and sh- quiet. <laughs> Everybody was going nuts in the dugout like, oh, my God. And <laughs> Cecil just sits down quietly and just happened to sit next to me. And I looked at him. He was just like big-eyed. And I said, did you get it? He goes, I got it. You know, did you get all of it? Just joking around. He goes, I got it. But he hit it out of the stadium. Out of the stadium. That's awesome. Yeah. Beautiful Milwaukee County Stadium. <laughs> oh, man. you got anything else? No, nope, I think we're good. We we've kept you long enough, Mark. Uh, we we appreciate your time, sir. Andy just I wanted to show this off. Andy went to the local card store 
and he searched for a few well, hours to get some of your baseball cards, man. Yes, that was yeah. worth seven hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, I had to take out a second mortgage for that one. That's that's Tiny. the uh, that's the tops all star rookie. Yeah. Also yeah. a rookie card. Yeah, it's a nice card. Yeah. Honestly, that's why I was always hoping Sparky would have gave me a chance to see if I could win 15, 17, 30 games. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've kept you long enough. Again, thank you so right. much for for uh, hanging with us and telling us some cool stories. So you're welcome, guys. I enjoyed it. Good luck to you. All right. Yeah. Thank a good you, Mark. one, Mark. Thank you. Thanks. You're welcome. All star rookie Mark Leiter going for seven hundred grand. That's right. That, the card I'm holding in my hand right now is going for seven hundred grand, isn't it? Yeah. We can retire right now. God. Well, you can retire. This is your card. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Man, I scooped that up for a quarter, so it <laughs> is a good investment. Absolutely. You know what I liked about this interview with Tucky is he, he was he was not afraid to get personal or kind of as much of a kind of a hard ass as he came off. He was. He was pretty easygoing and was happy to talk about. I I wanted to ask him about like intimate details of stadiums and things like that, and I do that a lot with with some of these baseball players because those stadiums are so. I hold them on a pedestal more than anything because mm-hmm. they have so much history to them. Yeah, Tiger Stadium, Fenway, and Yankee Stadium, and all those places. They're just they Wrigley Field. They just kind of hold a special place in my heart. We, there's no way you can't get sentimental rolling up to um, a major league baseball stadium. And he was really cool in indulging me and in, in talking about those uh, those fields and like how he felt. Like, yeah, I worked there. I, I, you know, how proud he was to get to go to work at at you know it was a Veterans Park, mm-hmm. Veterans Stadium. Yep. Yeah. So, because he was from that area and... Growing up as a kid, watching the Phillies and stuff. Exactly. So, to him, it meant a lot to to get to go to work, get to go and play in that field, the place that he kind of idolized or, you know, held in such high regard. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, this is is a pretty cool one. And he's a former Tiger, too. Like, how can we not... How can you not uh, get excited about interviewing a former Tiger? He was, uh, he's on that stat, like when I was a kid, yeah. he was on the staff when they had Cecil Fielder, Mickey Tettleton, Rob Deere in the lineup and stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that was my childhood as far as the Tigers go, you know? So yeah. that, that, that's why it was a highlight to me personally, you know? Yeah, as kids, those guys are giants. Uh, those, those like early 90s teams were, mm-hmm. were unbelievable. You know, those are a lot of fun to, for us to watch, like Cecil and, you know, yeah. So, yeah. so that that's our show. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, shout out to Heather and Holly. Yes, shout out to Heather and Holly. Like always, they they are amazing. If you haven't, the shows are airing uh, Wednesday, Wednesday before um, Valentine's Day. Yep. So go there. Why order something online and have it? You know, get to your sweetheart or whatever on the sixteenth or seventeenth. That's not when Valentine's Day is. No, no. It's on the 14th. Get out there, get it in your hands, and get it. <laughs> Whoa, where are you going with this, Hoffman? That's the, I, what easy I said there, was, easy there, guy. Get I know you have the gift in your hands. Whoa. Why, why don't you just cut it right now? You know what I meant. I know what you meant, Hoffman. Get, go to Heather and Holly. 
go to Heather and Holly. Hoffman is going to get it in his hands, and we'll be back next week with the Small Market Podcast. Yeah, it's his poor fault. You've been listening to the Small Market Podcast. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, send us a message at smallmarketpodcast at gmail.com, or get more behind-the-scenes writings from Hoffman at smallmarketpodcast-blogspot.com. Music for the Small Market Podcast has been provided by the 8-Arm Killer.